Hello and welcome to See You in Court, a podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. During each episode, we dive deep into stories, cases, and insights that matter to Georgians. You can learn more on our website at www.cuincourtpodcast.org. Join the conversation on our YouTube channel at CU and Court Podcast and stay connected with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash CU and Court Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and who both serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today is our wonderful co-host, Lester Tate. Lester, how are you doing today? Doing great. Happy New Year. We're off to off to 2024. I was trying to remember uh, what year in the history of the podcast this was, but uh, I think I think we started in 2020. I think. I think you're uh, right. This so is episode 40. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Time we've flies got... when you're having fun and have great guests, and I For think we've sure. got two great ones today too. Yeah, and and I can't wait to introduce you our listeners to them. But before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge that we're we're t- recording this on January 15, 2024, which is MLK Day. And yes. um, a cause and a person and a, and a movement near and dear to our hearts. Um, and I wanted to give a shout out to my dollar, daughter, Alex, who, uh, along with a bunch of her soccer friends, she plays in a adult league called Sons of Pitches. Um, and and she and a bunch of her her friends are making blankets at Astoria today to give to homeless people, and wow. I thought that's pretty awesome that these young adults are are spending their time doing that. So shout out to those folks at Sons of Pitches Soccer League making blankets. That's great. That's great. I love the way that so many people observe Martin Luther King Day with a day of service instead of. Uh, uh, a day of uh, uh, barbecue, and uh, I guess right. it's too cold for boating. But uh, and not that I have anything against barbecue and boating, but uh, it 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 does pay a proper homage to uh, Dr. King and his legacy. Right, a day on, not a day off. So, and we have a day on with two wonderful guests uh, today. We're going to be talking about negligence security and those types of cases with two absolute experts on the subject. Our guests are trial lawyers Gil Deitch and Andy Rogers, and we're excited to have Gil and Andy join us today. Um, Gil, Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Robin. Oh, glad to have you. I want to tell our listeners a little bit about each of you, uh, and then we'll get started into our deep dive in negligence security. Uh, Gil Deitch is widely recognized as a leading advocate for the rights of crime victims and an expert on civil cases arising from rapes and other criminal assaults occurring on private and public property. For decades, he has been known by lawyers and judges as a pioneering force in the field of premises liability and has handled more negligent security cases than any other attorney in the state of Georgia and throughout the Southeast. Gil Deitch is a member of the Georgia 
in Tennessee bar associations. He belongs to Georgia Trial Lawyers Association. He received his law degree, a JD, from University of Tennessee in 1970, and his undergraduate degree from the University of Georgia in 1967. Andy Rogers has worked tirelessly for crime victims since 1988. After beginning his career as a criminal prosecutor, Mr. Rogers has concentrated exclusively on representing crime victims in civil cases for over 20 years. Andy received his JD, uh, Juris Doctor degree, from Georgia State uh, University College of Law in 1988, and his Bachelor of Science in Zoology, which is interesting, from UGA uh, in 1984. So, uh, Gil and Andy, interestingly, joined forces, created their own law firm in 2008. The firm is called Deitch and Rogers, the Crime Victims crime victim law group. Gil and Andy, we're glad to have you um, and welcome, and we can't wait to, to do a deep dive into this subject matter. Well, thank so, you, Robin. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's start with talking a little bit about how each of you got involved in this, this particular field of negligent security. We, we know, Andy, you were a prosecutor. Gil, I remember, um, this is 35 years ago, but I remember when I was a young, young defense attorney, I had cases against you, and you were already doing negligent security and premises liability. Then, in 88, when I started, and I think you were known to be the man on that issue as well, even back then. So, what was it, let's start with Gil, that got you interested in this subject? Well, my then law partner came down the hall in 1985 and said, young lady had been raped at an apartment complex on Briarcliff and Druid, North Druid Hills. What do you know about that? I said, nothing. <laughs> so I ended up taking her case and ended up suing that same complex eight times because of the, the level of crime that, that, that went on there. So that was the beginning in 1985, and I'm still doing it. That was You said that was at uh, North Druid Hills. Was it at North Druid Hills and Briarcliff? Correct. It was called Druid Valley Apartments at that time. Yeah, that's where I lived when I was in law school at Emory. <laughs> well, let me tell you how bad, it was, how bad it was there. The maintenance crew would show up every morning in the maintenance shop, and like a World War II bomber, they had hash marks, and they'd have a, the, the types of crime on the wall. And when they knew about something, they'd just add another hash mark to the, <laughs> to the rape, break-in, whatever it was. So, oh man, that's you're, that's you're lucky. Bad. You're very lucky. Statistically, I, you you dodged the bullet. I'm I'm glad to know that now. I'm I'm glad I didn't know it then <laughs> because it was a cheap place to live, about all I could afford. So I was glad to have it. But um, geez, and you know it's still there. I I hope they've increased their security, but it it's still going strong. I mean, it's jam packed with with uh, tenants now. Right. So. Right. Um, and so that case kind of propelled you into the subject matter of negligent security. And just, I guess you probably just got case after case after case after that point. Well, there's a reason for that. Nobody else would do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it has something to do, uh, Gail, with maybe the fact that you won some of those cases. <laughs> yeah, that's right. true, but it was, it was a situation where lawyers would call me every day. Can you take this? Can you take that? Can you take this? And as we know, the law has progressed and it's got more uh, complicated. 
But back then it was just a slugfest. Yeah, well, we always enjoy a good slugfest. That's fun. Um, Andy, tell us your story. How did you first get in, interested in this subject matter? Well, it's kind of a it's kind of a a, a, a non direct uh, path that I took. I, I was a prosecutor for five years and obviously worked with a lot of survivors of of crime. And then I I know you know the firm French McCraney. I worked with them for sure. a few years and happened to be hired by the 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 mother of a of a boy he was still a minor who had who had been uh, molested by a family friend <clears throat> and i took that case on while i was at finch mccraney all the other cases i was handling were <laughs> were mostly soft tissue um motor vehicle accidents and i i bet i hint, i bet i closed 70 cases out one year it was a it was a bit of a grind, um, but I was really interested in, in this um, what turned out to be the first crime victim case I ever handled, um, and realized I wanted to do more than that. That didn't really fit with the the model and the practice uh, that that Finch McCraney was focused on. So I reached out to a, a lawyer named Gilbert Deitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I called him on the phone and I said, uh, you don't know me. I think I had heard him speak at a seminar. I said, you don't know me. Um, would you be interested or do you have any need for an associate? And you, you know that, that line um, where the where the guy says, get off, get off my lawn, kid. You're bothering me. Uh, or, or leave me alone. I don't need nobody's help. That's basically what Gilbert told me. <laughs> <laughs> he's he he's he not only said no he basically said hell no he was a little friendlier about it but than that but he made it really clear that he did not need or want an associate which is fine and it's no skin off my back but it was worth a a, a call out to him so you know shift ahead a couple more years and i had opened my own practice with um a longtime friend that i've met at the solicitor's office cliff howard um he was he was headed back into the prosecutorial world and i was trying to figure out what i was going to do next whether i was going to bring on a partner or or continue working on my own and i was working on a an apartment shooting case that we had gotten in um where basically three people got shot uh during a, an apartment robbery and i represent i represented a young man who survived and uh, there was a, a young woman who died in that shooting, and she was at the. At, it just so happened at the time being represented, or her family was being represented by Gil at the time. So we ended up on this case together, completely through no, you know, no decisions or or design of our own, and ended up ended up um, spending a few months working on this case together. And about that time, Gil's partner um, Henry Bauer was retiring. And Gil had an extra office in his in his office suite, and um, I was working out of my house at the time. That's before anybody was working out of their house. I don't even I don't even think I had a computer yet. This was this was um, I probably had just gotten a computer of sorts. And, and it, anyway, um, 
Gail and I decided that we, we would give it a trial run and work on some cases together. And I said, the only way I'm willing to come rent space from you is if you're willing to consider bringing me on as a partner. And he said, okay, let's give it a shot. And we continued on just the two of us um, for many years until we finally, for the first time for either of us, decided to bring on associates. And, and um, now there are four of us in this practice. And that was when Gil's office was up, um, was that Sandy Springs? Yeah. Right. And where then Gil, where Gil didn't have to drive far, but I did. Yeah. And now understand that um your office has you've you've you flipped a switch. It's closer to Andy's home. Your office is now on Ponce de Leon. Um and Gil has to do some driving to get down there this now. I've asked for a driver, but they won't give me one. Oh. You, you need to we've offered a driver. You need to file a complaint with the Human Resources Department, Gil. At least, Gil, you've got it in the actual work from home era. So if you don't want to go, you know, you can camp out at home. We got pretty proficient at that during the pandemic. Yeah. For sure. Although your office now is just gorgeous. So it's also good incentive to go Thank go you. there. Thank you. Um, let's you talk about let's talk about the evolution of this negligent security um type of law. Um, because we're talking to the two folks who have really, in my opinion, had a major hand in developing this law. And when I started preparing for today, looking over some of your cases, which are very noteworthy, just your own cases, um, it looks like we've made a lot of progress for crime victims in the last 40 years, where, Gil, when you first started that that first case, it may have been a little bit harder what you had to show meeting your burden of proof versus now with this Carmichael case that we're going to talk talk about issued by the Supreme Court of Georgia about six months ago, um, where I wouldn't say it makes it easy, but it recognizes what they call the totality of circumstances in meeting your burden. Gil, what do you think about that? Do you think it's gotten better for crime victims that you've observed in the last 40 years? The answer is yes. I I tell a quick story. I had a case down in Clayton County, Judge Ison. They call him Iceman Ison. <laughs> I, I went to court on a motion and he threw me out of court. And defense lawyer says, let's get this settled. So that's how it was then. But I, I have to give a lot of credit, and I've done it many times, to the bench in the 1980s and 1990s. They were trial lawyers who, who became appellate lawyers. And I like to say, back then, it was, you're entitled to a jury trial unless you can give me a reason why not. And today, it's more difficult. Some of the judges say, you're not entitled to one unless you can show me why. But it has gotten better on balance, but I, I can't ignore how good the appellate bench was which they believe on balance, they believe in the right to a jury trial. And that's what set the stage in the 1980s and 90s. So when I took my first case, I, rec I can recall two appellate decisions. One was Gene Novi's, and I can't remember who the other was, but we built from that to, to this point. And it's evolved with the, with the benefit of good lawyers and judges who do pay attention to the facts of the case. And I've told everybody around me, you take the law, give me the facts, 
and I'm going to win. That's just the way it is. I think, Gail, that's one of the, that may be one of the most, uh, most profound things that a trial lawyer has said in, in all our 40 episodes here is about how uh, things have changed with regard to the summary judgment versus versus uh, uh, getting a jury trial and, and and how that's viewed. I mean, now, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm getting trial by law clerk instead of trial by, you know, trial by jury. Uh, that you know, if the if if the judge or a law clerk's smart enough, they can figure out a way to just solve this right now instead of letting letting twelve folks come in. Uh, but also, I, I want to ask you. So, a lot of your your premises cases, and you know, Robin and I both handled some of those over the years. And so, you've, uh, you, and, and most of those, you've got a rape, you've got a murder, you've got a shooting, you've got whatever. And uh, when you're when you're talking about going to the jury with that. Uh, you know, you got to convince ordinary, uh, ordinary non-lawyer people, uh, or maybe extraordinary uh, non-lawyer people about that. And you know, one of the things that I always, uh, you know, struggle with. So, so and so got shot at their uh, apartment complex. You got a clear wrongdoer. Somebody Andy would have prosecuted. You know, in his prosecutorial days. And you're sitting down at the down at the diner, telling your friends about this case, and they say. Why are you suing the apartment complex, or why are you suing the store? Um, you know they didn't they didn't shoot the guy; the the, the criminal did. And uh, I, I'm I, I want to ask you how you answer that question with your buddies, mainly so I can use that same answer when the opportunity uh, uh, presents itself. Andy, we tell them how easy that is. <laughs> well, it's, I don't think it's as easy as it used to be. And it wasn't, and it was never easy. I mean, the the law presumes that the the property owner, business owner, is is not responsible. I mean, it's it's right there in the the jury pattern instructions. So yeah, we're. I mean, I I tell people we we represent crime victims in civil cases, and they say, oh, so you're a criminal lawyer? I said, no. Let me let me explain it to you. And it 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 takes more than a sentence typically to explain. To people, especially non-lawyers, what it is we do and how it is that, you know, an apartment property might bear responsibility under the law for, for really, really bad things happening on the property. It's it's all I don't think that'll ever change. People just don't for whatever reason it's it's not something that's that's easy to grasp um, or quick to you know, quick to understand. But, well, I, I like to say we litigate the exception to the general rule, and that's, that makes it even more difficult. Yeah. Every case that we've got is the exception, and you got to find the exception. Back to my point, give me the facts. We dig in and find out what happened historically as well as what happened at the time of. But, but by and large, I, I would say, and, you know, we've been able to focus on just this this kind of case for as long as we have, because there are a lot of irresponsible business owners out there. And, you know, the, the reality is, and this is going to sound cynical and kind of negative, but I think it's true that a, a lot of the owners and managers of dangerous properties um, find it easier and cheaper, frankly, to buy insurance than to do the right thing by, by, what the law requires and what their their customers tenants 
invitees deserve. Do you see any trend toward uh, insurers who, you know, that they pass the buck on, but, uh, you know, for example, with uh, like workers' comp insurance, you know, you're, and all of us who've had people work for you, you know, whether you've handled workers' comp or not, you know, they come in and they tell you, you need to make sure your panel's posted and all this other stuff. Do you see uh, premises insurers uh, providing any kind of inspection or uh, guidelines, or do they not really want to do that because it uh, it it would aid uh, a plaintiff's lawyer in proving that they they didn't follow those guidelines? I mean, I haven't seen it. We've we've tried to to do some discovery around that, but um, have not gotten very far doing that. Second and third hand, I've heard that the, well, here's what my experience over the years, a certain group insurance companies will write a certain book of business, including premises liability. Then they got their rear ends handed to them, so they move on. The next group comes in and takes the, the premium, but they don't ever really underwrite to figure out what their exposure is. And so then they they move along. But in their recently, from people I've spoken with who are in the insurance business, um, they've kind of cracked down on the coverage and the premiums have gone gone way up, which leads itself to this question of exclusions and sublimits, which lessens the price of getting insurance, which creates more exposure to the crime victim because if you got a, a no asset LLC that runs a particular property, um, you you get nothing other than insurance, and if they don't have any insurance or have a very small sub limit, then the victim quote unquote pays the price. Yeah, and I, uh, also if you do have insurance, there's a chance they're going to file a declaratory judgment action and and say we don't provide coverage for this incident. That happens. Yeah, many times it boils down to what is an accident, and per the policy. Well, killing somebody is not an accident, but you get into the construction of the of the insurance contract and deck actions, so it, it becomes quite can become quite messy. We've we've experienced. We bring in other lawyers who do deck action work, and we um, go along with them and let them take the lead on that component. Do you, do you all typically name the 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 primary wrongdoer, uh, you know, the, the criminal uh, in those cases, uh, or do you uh, leave them out? I mean, they certainly, you know, under our system now, you know, of apportionment can get some uh, level of apportionment. Uh, you, uh, defense lawyers can ask for some level of apportionment, even if they, uh, even if they're not a party, but how are y'all handling that issue? Very delicately. <laughs> Gil, you want to jump on that? Yeah, I can I can answer that like a politician. The answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, basically, if you need the criminal for jurisdictional and venue purposes, or if the criminal has some coverage, depending on who it is, or the policy may cover them the the criminal who may be an employee of a defendant. But typically we stay away from them unless we need them. And so sometimes you gotta have them for for jurisdiction and venue. And sometimes there may be an argument about uh, 
an additional insured. Well, another another reason we might is if they're if they're so connected to the defendant, the target defendant, that it, it just makes sense to include them, whether they're technically an insured or not. Um, a lot of the cases that we handle, we don't know who the we don't know who the criminal is because they've never been caught. And one of the you know one of the arguments we typically make is one of, is, is one of the reasons they've never been caught is because it's for the same reason they they were able to victimize our client so easily on this property, and that's because nobody's paying attention, and um, the the criminals are able to move on and off the property and do what they want without being detected or or deterred. Um, so yeah, it's there are a lot of reasons too sue them and we've gone back and forth over the years when gill and i started in 2008 um you know the the new apportionment law had had been in effect for about three years and was just starting to rear its head and and the you know the practicality of the, of the practice and um before then you know when when gill was suing these cases it he could sue the criminal or not and Joint and several liability was the was the law of the land. Um, so we, you know, once a portion non-party apportionment came into effect, we had to and still have to think long and hard about what, what's the best strategy as it relates to to naming the the criminal. And it and it typically is driven mostly by venue slash jurisdiction concerns. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about apportionment and your role in trying to um, figure all this out with the new law that that came about in 2005. Y'all started your firm in 2008, and as Andy said, it was joint and several, meaning you could pick who you wanted to sue, and if you were successful, that defendant then had could sue for contribution from a non-party, and apportionment changed that in 2005, and then you come along with your case, Couch versus Red Roof Inns, um, Supreme Court of Georgia case, and that took on the question of, can you apportion to the criminal defend the criminal, even non-defendant or criminal defendant, the intentional wrongdoer versus a negligent party? I can remember when we were t talking about this been back in that that many years ago gill where your argument was you cannot apportion to the hazard and the hazard's the intentional wrongdoer the criminal and you shouldn't be allowed to apportion your duty of protection to the criminal and our court said no you can do that and i'll tell you when that happened uh, there were several mediators who came out with a position that, oh, these uh, negligent security cases are gone. They're, they, they're, they're just over because now the juries are going to apportion 100% to the criminal <laughs> defendant. And it took one case by you guys, uh, and that that didn't happen. Um, that I love that because it was your case, and you flat out proved all the, the naysayers wrong, and the jury got it right. Maybe they would put one percent, maybe two percent on the on the criminal. The rest they held the the premises owner responsible uh, for the safety of of the folks on their property. So tell us talk a little bit about Couch versus Red Roof Ends. That's such a, a a huge case 
um, in this jurisprudence of negligent security, both that you can apportion to a criminal defendant. And then, you know, back then before the opinion came out, I thought there was no way any court would 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 consider the word fault, which I think is a negligence concept to include an intentional wrongdoer. Talk, tell us a little bit about that case and, and your thoughts on it. Well, Andy was involved more than I, so take it away. Yeah, let, let, let me let me back us up a little bit because there's there's some there's some more stuff back there that I think is is interesting to talk about. Gil and I started in 2008, and I, I don't know the exact year, but it's probably 2010. Gil, me if I'm wrong, we we tried the first non-party apportionment case in the state of Georgia. It was in DeKalb County State Court with Judge Wong, and it was a shooting death case. And I, I mean, we could spend an hour and a half talking about that case. But I'm not <laughs> going to the 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 thing that happened that was that was what was so concerning in that case, and frankly, very motivating for me and Gil and others who were paying attention to this. And this happened. Bef this was before the Couch case. Um, we we tried this case to a DeKalb County jury. I made the mistake, and I've never done it since, made the mistake of asking Judge Wong, can I explain to the jury how this apportionment <laughs> business works? And he said, no. <laughs> I was like, damn it. I shouldn't have asked him. I should have just done it. But but the, the problem was, and we found out it's not just hypothetical, was that when the when the 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 court did not explain and and we the lawyers did not explain how non-party non apportionment worked and how the math worked, we were concerned that they were going to go ahead and, and do the apportionment themselves rather than waiting for the judge to apply the math after the fact. And that's exactly what happened. The, the jury in our case went ahead and reduced the named defendant's responsibility by whatever percentage, and it was significant, that they were putting on the non-party and then Judge Wong did it again. <laughs> and the only way we knew that that had happened, that, that was our fear. But we talked, and I hate doing this, and I know everybody, all trial, trial lawyers feel differently about whether, whether it's a good idea to talk to jurors afterwards. And I go back and forth on it. But we did. We went back in the jury room and talked to them. And it became very clear, very quickly, what they had done. And, and, and they were... They were disappointed that they didn't understand how the math worked before they did the math. And what there's but there was nothing we could do at that point. Anyway, that was very motivational for me and others who were, you know, throwing all of our eggs into the premises liability negligent security basket. And, you know, setting aside the 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 fact that the legislature basically passed this new law overnight. And it was just a piece of what had been passed in Florida. And had they done what Florida had done, they would have they would have left intentional acts out of the out of the realm of non non-party apportionment. But that being said, this couch versus red roof ends case came along, and Jeff Mickelvet was was lead counsel on that case, and I <laughs> I convinced him to let me argue it. Um, and it turns out anybody could have argued it. Even Naveen Ramachandrapa, who we work with a lot, could have argued, and it wouldn't have made any difference, I don't think, because the writing was on the wall and the Supreme Court was was going to allow non-party apportionment. What they did, though, 
they've um, they threw us a bit of a bone. And I'm not I'm not you know casting aspersions to the bench. They've done a really good job on a lot of cases, and they I think they work very hard at getting it right. Um, they they did add in that in that opinion that although non-party apportionment to criminals can happen, there has to be a rational basis for the jury's apportionment. Um, so we added some of that language to jury charges for a while. And um, as it turns out, jurors get it. I mean, we, we argued in the Six Flags case, and I know you've talked about that case on, on this show before. Um, I, I, got, I got to explain the, to the jury in that case how the math worked. Um, and they got it. They understood that, that while, you know, the criminals are acting with, with intent to harm, there is a duty under the law, and the good thing is we've got great, we do have great premises liability statutory law that says what a, what a property owner is required to do, and that is to protect from, from dangerous conditions. And we've argued year, year in and year out to juries that the, the, the property owner who has the responsibility to guard against dangerous conditions should not get credit for, for messing up and getting the reduction in the responsibility of, and, and, you know, not, not being responsible for the harms that came from their failures. But it's been an interesting journey, to say the least. If I, if I might add a footnote to that, I know, Lester and Robin, you've probably experienced it, but jurors don't think the way lawyers and judges do. <laughs> they go back and they have their own rationale. And what this has done to, to some extent in, what, in cases and a great extent in others is it increases the value of the case because if they like the plaintiff, they want to get the plaintiff money. If they don't like the plaintiff, it's the other. But it, it's had an impact on, on jury verdicts, including the, the, ration, the apportionment concept. Yeah, we do a lot of focus groups and we, we've watched them because we get to watch them deliberate, we've watched them negotiate with each other using apportionment percentages as well as, you know, broad damages numbers. And we know that's what's happening in jury rooms. And, and Gil's right. When, the, when, a, when a jury understands what it all means and ultimately d decide that this, this named defendant needs to be held accountable, then they figure out the math. So you you actually in the focus group hear jurors saying, "Yeah, if we find against the criminal, he ain't got a penny to contribute to this." Or or oh, and, yeah. and and or, well, after we've done all this math, and the plaintiff only gets X dollars, that's not fair. Well, in the Six Flags case, we had three named, three or four named perpetra criminal perpetrators who had had four. Small, we had four four total on the verdict form, and uh -huh. the. That we spoke to the jurors afterwards, and they had put a very low percentage, but they understood that that meant these criminals, if if they ever came into some money, would have to pay. And they and they figured out how much they wanted the criminals to pay too. It was interesting to hear all that afterwards. The um, the Six Flags case uh, was an amazing case, and I I don't ever go to Six Flags. I'm not a, an amusement park person, but I think about all the families who do. And I think, I hope that your effort in Martin versus Six Flags has 
has made some people safe at Six Flags. Um, but back then, and that's a 2017 appellate opinion. I don't know what year y'all tried the case. 2013 is the is the year of the 2013. So we that start, was a, we started in 2007. Oh my gosh! When, wow. Do you remember when the actual injury was? Was that in 2000? July Fourth of July, a couple of days before the Fourth of July, 2007. Wow. So ten years. Uh, just an amazing effort by you guys. I I. I think I was trying a case. This this was tried up in um this was Cobb County, right? Yeah. yeah. I think I think I was trying a case down the hall or something when y'all were trying Martin and was able to come in and watch just a, a little bit of your trial. Um, but just to remind our listeners, uh this involved the beating of a person uh who was at Six Flags and he was beaten almost to death um by a gang. And through discovery in your lawsuit, you found out that Six Flags knew about this gang, that they even hired gang members. Uh, I think Gil told me about going in the locker rooms of employees and there were gang tags spray painted everywhere on the locker rooms. Um, and this, I think, would have continued, but for your your case and um, the verdict we should mention, I think, I don't remember exactly, but it was $30 million maybe $35 million verdict, huge verdict that, um, in in my opinion, w was exactly right. The jury got it exactly right, just exactly what you're talking about. It it got reversed because of um, <laughs> um, two, I think, two, two people they could identify who weren't named on the verdict form or something like that, which was kind of ridiculous in my opinion. Um, and I assume it ultimately resolved after that. but. Um, you know, I, I think that case is a, a great example of how your work can actually make a difference and 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 create better safety for patrons. Gil, before you do, and I know what you're about to do. <laughs> I, uh oh, I have to say, and you haven't mentioned Mike Neff's name yet, but I know you. I know y'all. Yes, Mike Neff tried that case with y'all, right? Well, Mike Neff brought Gill into it just as Gill and I were, were considering working together. Oh, okay. And, and as it turned out, we all three got to work on it. And I, I, I'm pretty sure Mike mentioned how many depositions were taken. Um, it was it was a an all out team effort, and it was that that was the most gratifying case I had worked on um, up until that point because of how many people were involved in this very effective machine of a team that that worked really well together um the reason i jumped in is because, <laughs> because i would love to say that that our efforts in that case and the ultimate result which turned out very well for our client um ended the problems that um led to the you know the, the that case being sued in the first place but take it, take it from here, Gil. I'm still at it with them. <laughs> <laughs> with Six Flags? Oh yeah, yeah. But that's we that's, got two cases with them right now. That's so disappointing that they did. They don't get it. Well, it's it's value what what they're willing to put into security versus what to protect the their their client base, their customers. 
it's it's an interesting phenomenon, um, but it keeps it keeps happening there. I, I want to back up a little bit to the the Martin Six Flags verdict. Yeah, there there were four perps who were on the verdict form, and the jury apportioned to each of them two percent. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court said you you need to try it because there's possibly and one or two other people who may have been involved in his beating. And our response is, well, they've already, what are we doing? They, they gave 2% to, to the known perps. What are they going to, what would a jury do to the rest of the unknown? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small percentage. But as Andy said, it was, a, it was a great activity. I like to tell the story. When I first met Neff, he called me, invited me, and then, Andy and the rest of us in. He had no children. When we were finished, he had three children. <laughs> I don't think they reached high school yet. <laughs> he, he created a whole family while we were litigating that case for ten years. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. but Gil, that I mean, that was that was not a, an unusual feat for you, um, Robin Hunt and, and Lester. I don't know if y'all remember, but Gil. He, Gil litigated the Olympic bombing case on behalf of the family of the of the only person who didn't survive that bombing, and they went up. Didn't you go to the Supreme Court twice on that case and ended up taking ten years to resolve, eight or ten years? Well, Charlie Carnes, I loved the guy. He loved me. And he kept ruling against me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we spent eight years on that case, and finally, after all the appeals, we successfully mediated it. For the for the mother and the daughter, the daughter survived. The mom, as you know, was was killed. So it was an interesting thing. I got to go to the sentencing of Eric Robert Rudolph when they caught him, because I represented the family. And I've never seen the, the FBI agents were giving high fives to each other. They caught him, and and I think Judge who was Judge Pinnell, I think sentenced him to supermax, and I. I guess he's still there. I don't know. But that was an interesting result. Well, that was an interesting case all around, considering how much other litigation spawned from it with Richard Jewell and all of that. That was just a very interesting thing. I drive on my way to work. I drive by Centennial Park every day and see the Olympic rings. And I think of that poor woman who died, your client. Um, I still think of her and how tragic that was. Um, but yeah, gr- great case. And we have talked with Mike Neff about that case. Mike Neff is also a great, great trial lawyer and just shows that when you put your forces together, what, what can be accomplished. Um, let's talk a little bit about this new case, fairly new, came out in June of 2023, Georgia CVS Pharmacy versus Carmichael. I know y'all were involved at least from an amicus standpoint, um, I'm not sure it doesn't tell me who you who you are representing as an amicus um but it's a it's an amazing 44 page opinion from the Georgia uh Supreme Court authored by Justice Bethel Charlie Bethel um and as a a trial lawyer when I read it it seems to me to really turn things around for crime victims and say used to be you had to have almost the exact same type of crime that had occurred at those premises before you could get to a jury on this kind of case. And now they're saying, no, 
you don't have to have the exact same crime that happened before. We're going to look at it as from a totality of circumstances. Crime in the area. Is that air is that uh premises in a high crime area? Um what are your thoughts about Carmichael? Do you think it's I know it's brand new. Um what are your thoughts about it? And do you think it's going to change the landscape for crime victims? Andy, you want to go first? No, I want you to. <laughs> well, CVS, if you look at it, if you really dig into the history of premises liability law, when I started in 1985, we were still arguing whether that was the issue, totality of circumstances. In 1997, the Supremes came out um, with Sturbridge, and they really focused on prior substantially similar. So if you break that down, that's that's a bunch of questions of what is prior, what is substantial, and what is similar. So we fought over that for all these years. Now the Supreme Court's come back to the concept of priors and or the totality of circumstances, which they don't look with blinders on just to the prior history of crime. They look at the reality of where the property is, what they've experienced, how property crimes can increase to personal crimes, et cetera, et cetera. So if you really, really take a close look at it, the the optics appear to be that it's a new rule, but it's it's really not. It's been ingrained in the in the law for about 70 years. Uh, but everyone focused on the prior similars. But now they they really dug into it and they looked at at the history of this and they got it right. How much? Yeah, we. Were, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Les. I, I was going to ask how much. So you know, for a lot of for a lot of these, when you're talking about whether they're substantially similar or not substantially similar, uh, it, you know, and particularly when you're focusing on the property owner occupier's liability, you look at what steps they didn't take or could have taken, you know, in order to prevent that. And so, uh, but how much does it depend on whether, you know, for example, somebody that gets kidnapped versus somebody that gets shot versus some, you know, where there's just a showing of break-ins and property crimes, all that, if you have adequate locks, uh, security measures or whatever would prevent that, even though they, they might be, one might even be a property crime and the other might be a crime uh, against the person. Uh, how, how much does that come into play in your analysis and looking at those cases? Gil? Your turn. <laughs> I'll follow but, up. No, it's a, it's a, never, it's never a, put these guys on the witness stand at the same time. You know, <laughs> well, well we, we practice law, the old baseball adage, I got it, I got it, you take it. <laughs> Yeah we've, we've done, yeah, we've done that in a few trials where the other side's putting up witnesses and we're like, who's doing this cross? And I'll say, I'll take this one, or you take that one. Anyway, um, that, that your question's kind of, kind of broad, Lester, and I, I think it, I think it kind of illustrates some of the, 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 the confusion or the, the bigness of what the real issues are in, in these cases. And, um, go, going into that that case, the the CBS case, we really we had no clue what was coming out. We had we had no clue which way the the Supreme Court was going to go, and we're and we're obviously very um, 
pleasantly relieved that they dug in the way they did. Um, because, you know, in, in, in most of these cases, we're, we're talking about, is there enough evidence to get to a jury on whether there was a, a danger on the property of the type um, that the victim was subjected to, such that the property owner should be should have anticipated and should have done something about what they anticipated without getting into the, and we've, we've had to, we've had to defend motions in Lemony where you'll probably got a better handle on the exact example, but just hypothetically where the defendants are saying, Hey, that prior rape happened um, in the B building and and your client got raped in the C building so those aren't similar enough and i'm i'm exaggerating a little bit but yeah. but you know there's there's the initial question of whether there's enough evidence from a legal standpoint to survive summary judgment when considering things like prior crime and then there's the question of well, how how much of of the prior crime actually goes in front of the jury um and those are those are typically two different questions. And then there's a bunch of questions that get rolled into that, such as does the property owner have actual knowledge of the prior crimes, or do they have constructive knowledge? Should they have found out about you know 82 burglaries over five years, or is it okay that they stuck their heads in the sand and, and didn't bother going to the police department to find out what's been happening on their property? You know, it, it reminds me, you know, the, the trail, I'm glad, I guess we didn't go down, but it reminds me a little bit of the, something we all know if you've, if you've sued governmental entities, you know, and where they claim immunity, you know, is it discretionary or ministerial, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so we created these, you know, the courts created these two uh, categories and, uh, you know, in reality now, everything's, everything's ministerial. There's not anything that's discretionary yeah. and there's not really uh, a lot of uh, standards to do that. You know, it's, it's whatever, whatever judge uh, it was looking at at a certain time. And it seems like, you know, with this decision, we may have avoided some of that confusion. Uh, well, I don't guess it's confusion because like I said, I, I don't think governments do any discretionary, I mean, do any ministerial task anymore. You know, everything's <laughs> discretionary. But uh, uh, it seems like there are a little bit better guidelines for this than what we've seen in some other well, yeah, areas. One of the, one of the points I'm, I'm, I'm glad got um, analyzed in this case is that what the, what the employees of this CVS knew and were concerned about was relevant. Um, and we've, we've seen rulings that go the other way. We've certainly heard arguments that that's not the standard um so it was it was very encouraging and and makes complete common sense that the court says if if you've got employees on this property who are concerned about going to their cars for instance that's relevant to the totality of the circumstances as to what was foreseeable uh to these defendants so that, that for me that was one of the highlights of that of that case. Yeah, I was going to share um, the the opinion in Carmichael goes through 70 years of jurisprudence on this issue, but then it 
it talks about the evidence in each case, because remember, there were two cases, CVS case and a Papa's restaurant case. Papa Do's. Papa Do's. That's right. Okay. (laughs) And the CVS evidence was female employees were regularly escorted to their vehicles after work. Uh, The store was in a high crime area and employees considered the parking lot dangerous. And the court said that was enough. Um, in the Papado's case, the the restaurant knew of multiple break-ins at surrounding restaurants, hotels, and office complexes, as well as the Windy Hill area, which is a pretty large area, um, and the restaurant's knowledge of an altercation down the street. <laughs> and they used that in quotation marks, down the street involving yeah. armed assailants. And they said that was enough. Um, no more of this exact exact same crime that occurs that you have to point to to survive summary judgment and get to a jury. Now, as as Gil said, um, when you read this, you think, wow, they've just totally changed the whole uh, foundation of negligent security. But um, Justice Bethel says this, in the end, the relevant question here is the one our cases have asked for 70 years whether the totality of the circumstances establish reasonable foreseeability such that the proprietor has a duty to guard against that criminal activity. So as Gil said, people got went down the rabbit hole of substantially similar, but in reality, it's, it's always been total, the, the t- totality of circumstances. In this case, just nails it and recognizes it finally. Yeah, the perception, the optics are that we got a new standard. But what they've done is they've gone in and analyzed the seven years, 70 years of jurisprudence, and they've talked about all of it, and they've reiterated that all of it is important, not just a prior similar of a break-in. You gotta look, you gotta it, it's it's a it's a realistic look at at the, the property. And remember, everyone should remember that. Foreseeability is typically a jury issue. And these are the elements that a jury has to decide whether it's even foreseeable something like this could happen. So to put on blinders and say, you didn't have a car break in or you didn't have a rape similar to this, ignores the rest of the circumstances of the property. I've always said there's three timelines, the victims, the corporate timeline, and the perpetrator. And when they cross, that's the incident. So you got to look at the history of all three of them. One other case um, I wanted to mention of yours that is very well known in Georgia jurisprudence on negligent security is the Gatto case, Gatto v. City of Statesboro. Um, and that case, um, tw- a 2019 case, so fairly recent, but just for our listeners to remind them, that case involved uh, a person who was a patron at a bar in Statesboro, where Georgia Southern University is, um, and he was beaten and I believe killed by the the bouncer of the bar. And um, at least the opinion is about potential liability by the city of Statesboro um, for. I've never been down there, but at this place called University of Plaza, where apparently 
there is a lot of drinking going on and a lot of underage drinking going on. At least there was back back then. Um, and so y'all look to try to hold the city of Statesboro responsible. Um, and one theory was nuisance, which I know um, even in a case I had with Andy um, involving negligent design of a road, Gil, Gil said, try nuisance, you know, add nuisance. So you've been a big promoter of that cause of action in these kind, kind of cases. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the Gatto case, because that's a very famous case in our in our jurisprudence. Well, I, thank you for bringing it up. I, I, I might say it's an infamous case. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I, I want to be sensitive because um, it was a it was a terrible, tragic incident that that just never should have happened it never should have happened and the 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 major reason that it did happen was because of the culture that had been festering and i'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it festering in statesboro for years if not decades um and a little more the the backstory if you will and again i'm trying to be very sensitive to our clients who lost their 18 year old son before he stepped foot into his first college class. Um, he, he basically got attacked for something that he did not do by a bouncer who was also underage, who was off duty, who should not have been there and had been drinking. Um, all overseen by a, a bunch of other irresponsible people right on up to one of the city councilmen. Um, who was eventually um, found to be a part owner in the bar where Michael was was attacked and, and beaten. So we we worked very hard um, to hold the city responsible for failing to enforce its own laws around underage drinking. Um, they had multiple, multiple um, arrests at this place. They had multiple people go into the hospital um, because of ultimately underage drinking being allowed. And there were very specific things that should have happened uh, in the uh, municipal court system to ultimately put this bar and these folks out of business before the Gatto's son ever showed up there. And um, we litigated that case. Uh, we, we again had expert outside appellate counsel. And what we ended up with was a basic blanket immunity, even, even where there's insurance coverage to um, cover this kind of incident for cities um, who just let things happen like Statesboro, Statesboro did in this case. It's still, it's still a very frustrating case to think about, to be honest, but it cleared up a lot of things. <laughs> that's, that's not what we were trying to have happen. Um, there was a, a substantial insurance policy that basically said, we cover you for these kinds of claims unless you are immune for these kinds of claims. And the law at that time was municipalities are immune from these kind of claims unless they have insurance coverage for these kinds of claims. Mm -hmm. 
So it was, you know, it was a catch twenty two circular argument. Yeah. Right. It worked perfectly for the insurance company that wrote the the policy. Didn't help. It allowed them to take the premium without ever having to pay a claim. That's exactly right. And it frankly left the city kind of naked. Um, but there wasn't much we could do beyond the, the policy because they were they were immune without it. Sad, sad case. Um, I assume y'all had a dram shop case in addition. We did not. And okay. A bunch of reasons we did not. Um, okay. And, and it mainly had to do with how the business was set up. There was no insurance coverage for anybody. Um, okay. And that was by design. And there was, there was, you know, shell owners and, um, <clears throat> you know, we did have a claim briefly, I think, against the, the uh, shopping center there, but we we could not keep them in because there was no knowledge or, or duty on their part for what was going on inside the club. The uh, the part of the appellate opinion that really made me shake my head was where the court held that nuisance um, did not apply here because the injury was to person or loss of life. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the I, nuisance, I still you know, don't get that, but okay. You know, most most of the nuisance claims, well, you know, have to have to begin with the analysis here that this did not happen on city property, and there but there are a bunch of nuisance cases out there that were upheld where the damage did not occur on city property, but was caused by something that began on on city property. I think is is how the analysis went. Um. So the first thing they were looking at is where did the injury happen? And then second, they basically said if it's a if it's a personal injury that does not take place on city property, then it doesn't matter what the nuisance was. We're not gonna we're not gonna allow liability in that in that situation. And the the city's liability was based on the failure of the, of the city to not give them permits to serve alcohol and had they been exactly. actually doing their job this right. wouldn't have happened Allow, allowing the, the there's no doubt that this bar and this frankly this it was a group of bars at this shopping center were they, they qualified as a nuisance I mean, they they but the the court would not allow the city to be held responsible for allowing that nuisance to be maintained very, very interesting case, but also, as so many of our cases are, very sad, very sad case. Yeah. Um, you know, my heart goes with the parents. I can't even imagine. Um, well, guys, we've been going for a little bit over an hour, and I've, I've um, as you know, we ask every one of our guests, uh, how do you define justice? So we're at that time that I want to ask each of you. How do you define justice, or what is your notion of justice? And um, who wants to go first? There's Robin pinning the witness down before they try, <laughs> they try to shuffle I'll, off. The I'll go first in the in the context of premises liability, and this may not be the answer um, to your question, but to me, justice in this area of the law as a lawyer who has a crime victim and has a premises liability case, justice is putting together the right team to work on 
the case. And by that, I mean, <clears throat> there are a lot of rabbit trails, a lot of pitfalls, there's a lot of evidentiary questions. And to me, justice for the victim is for the lawyer to recognize he, she, they should team up and work as a team with the, with the differing uh, abilities of counsel, just as, as Andy alluded to in Martin Six Flags. So to give justice to the victim is to have the right set of lawyers to pursue all the avenues, because you can get stuck very easily on one of these rabbit trails and get tossed, which, and you shouldn't. But if, every, if you got enough eyes and ears on it, you know what they're doing, that will give your client justice. Great. Andy? Yeah, and I'll, I'll tag, tag on to that, or tack on to that. It's not, just, it's not just the lawyers who make up the team. Um, I, if I had to sit down and count the number of people, and Robin and Lester, you know what I'm talking about. It, 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 while, while it's fun to be the one making closing argument, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into a case up until and, and, and even beyond that point that includes paralegals and other assistants and um, it's court reporters who, who do a good job. And um, we work with a trial consultant very early in our cases just to help us begin to know where the, the, the focus needs to be. And, and, and I, I agree that um, in order to get full justice for a client, we as lawyers need to make sure we're putting together the, the best team for our clients. Beyond that, I would say, you know, for our clients, justice comes in a lot of different forms. Um, one of the most powerful displays of justice, and I think justice is probably better described as a verb than a, than a noun, is when a jury is, is allowed to and does seriously consider what's happened in a case and returns a verdict that's based on the, the truth of the case. And whether that's a criminal case or a civil case, um, I, I think in the, in the civil realm, because as we all know, plaintiffs decide whether to bring a case, not the state, um, to have a, a jury, if it comes to that, to make a decision, um, can mean everything to a client. And, and if it doesn't go to a jury trial, a settlement can feel like justice for a client. Um, we, we settled a case a couple of weeks ago with a very um, fragile client who we were concerned might not recover anything because we had some difficult facts. And we were able to settle the case and she sat in our conference room and said, I, you know what, I, I really, really feel like justice has been done. I've been heard. And that's, that's why any of us do, do this kind of work. Um, and it looks different for every client. Y'all know it's, it's, it's different. It feels different for every client. And, and we hopefully are paying attention to that when we're helping them make decisions about how to proceed with the case. Very one, good. One, one Very word. Good point. It, it yes, sir. Down. To many clients, it boils down to I've been validated. I I have been recognized. I've been validated. Aside from financial, that is huge for these crime victims. Huge. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Gil. I once had a, a case where I had to have an expert do a, a just an informal um, examination of my client, and he confirmed based on that examination what, what had occurred to her, that it was the negligence of the defendant doctor. And, she, and, and when he said that, she started crying. I mean, we haven't even filed suit yet, but <laughs> somebody believed her that this happened to me. He proved it, and she started crying. I'm like, oh, wow. Um, so I understand she felt heard and like that that may have been enough for her at that point, but um, it is different for every client. Um, and uh, you, you, part of our job is to recognize that and figure that out and and try to achieve that goal for our clients, which you guys do on a daily basis. And um, just hats off to you for your work in this area of negligent security. It's amazing. Absolutely. So I want to just remind our listeners, we've been talking today with Gil Deitch and Andy Rogers of the law firm Deitch and Rogers, and you can learn more about Gil and Andy at victimattorneys.com. Thank you, Gil and Andy. We appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. Enjoyed it. All right. So uh, this is the time in our uh, broadcast where Robin and I typically uh, look for stories about trials, the law, uh, justice that are in the news, and we each bring one here and we sort of briefly uh, discuss it. And uh, and uh, I've been I drew the short straw today, hey, listeners. I get to go first, uh, and so the one that I am going to mention is one from today, actually posted a few hours ago in Newsweek magazine. It's entitled Donald Trump Faces Surprises from Judge, and it's about the lawsuit that's brought by E. Jean Carroll uh, against Trump in the Southern District of New York. That case uh, heads to trial beginning on Tuesday, January 16th. That would be tomorrow. And there have been been issues. You recall, Robin, there was a jury verdict against Trump for sexual assault a civil verdict uh, in Judge Kaplan's courtroom. This is now the defamation uh, part of that. And uh, in this article, it talks about the ruling that uh, he made uh, recently, which says that Trump cannot dispute that the sexual assault took place, which is what he did in the prior trial, but he's lost that, and so he can't do it. So the question that this article uh addresses is, is he or is he not planning on testifying? And you'll recall in the uh, lawsuit involving his company, he wanted to make closing argument for himself, which, you know, I don't care who you are, that's a bad idea, uh, in my view, for a client to want to make their own uh, closing argument. It's kind of like wanting to perform surgery on yourself instead of hiring a competent surgeon. Uh, He was not supposed to be allowed to do that, but in fact did get up and make a little six-minute spiel. Uh, That was all on television. That was all on uh, in a bench trial as opposed to a jury trial. And as Robin, you know, and all of our listeners know, you know, with jury trials, uh, the court has to go to extraordinary length to make sure that uh, matters which are not admissible do not go in front of the jury. And so uh, in the order, and it quotes uh, one of the one of the 
uh, legal analyst for MSNBC, uh, Lisa Rubin, who said Judge Kaplan's refusal to detail the measures he'll take to ensure Trump obeys prior rulings and the law complicates Trump's decision tree. He'll have to decide whether to show up in New York or not, uh, New York, not knowing what Kaplan has in store for him before, during, or after he takes the stand. And so I brought this up because it's it's interesting to me that you've got a trial that's going on, that you've had a ruling in that same case, and you're not going to be allowed to dispute that ruling. And you've got someone who very clearly wants to do that. And uh, Judge Kaplan is somebody that I am pretty familiar with. You remember the Chevron case for years ago, there was a lawyer that basically got disbarred for his handling of the Chevron uh, case, uh, which Judge Kaplan had. And so now he's refused to detail this, but you can count on several things. One is, you know, it's not going to be televised, so there's no broader argument because federal court proceedings are not. The second thing is that uh, with a jury, you can expect a judge to be much more zealous in guarding what goes on in the courtroom so that it doesn't uh, you know, resolve, uh, evolve into a mistrial or whatever else. So as that trial starts tomorrow, uh, I am sort of uh, curious to read about, won't get to see it, what measures are in place and whether, uh, whether he does actually take the stand and abides by the rulings or if does not, if he, if, if he doesn't abide by the rulings, what sanctions Kaplan has in order, because prior uh, experience with Kaplan would indicate that they will probably be pretty harsh. Yeah, that'll be fun to watch. Uh, I didn't realize it was starting tomorrow. But in the in the case where Trump wanted to to do his own closing argument and and said he wasn't and then stood up and delivered about five minutes of closing argument, none of which was germane or relevant or based on evidence. Um, as you said, had that happened in a jury trial, I would assume there might have been a mistrial. Um, but because it was a bench trial, the judge can weed out judge that. Judge can disregard what they yeah. want to. Yep. Ju judge understands. So, But that, to me, just demonstrated that no attorney has control over that particular client, Mr. Trump. Oh. They yeah. cannot control him. He does whatever he wants. Well, and, he, and I, I, I guess you saw in the run-up to that, the judge had sent a letter out to his counsel. He sent it to all counsel, but said, yeah, if he wants to make the closing argument, he's got to agree by, to abide by the rules that lawyers have to abide by. You can't talk about things that aren't in evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't use it as a, 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 a political speech. Uh, you know, you have to sum up based on what's in evidence and what the law is didn't, you know, didn't, they did not acquiesce. I think they didn't respond in time, if I remember correctly about that. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. And just as we feel pressures on other uh, points of our democracy, uh, we're, we're feeling them, I guess, in the courtroom too. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, uh, with regard to that. Sure will. My story deals with a, an opinion issued on November 13, 2023, by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the name of the case is Boudreaux versus Louisiana State Bar Association. And in Boudreaux, and I've read the case, and I'm just absolutely appalled by it, but 
a lawyer licensed in Louisiana and a member of the State Bar of Louisiana sued the State Bar of Louisiana on the basis of First Amendment violations because some of his bar dues went to wellness programs by the State Bar, uh, including simply advertising wellness issues on their website. And the uh, Fifth Circuit looked at the Keller case, which we used to always have to look at whenever we did any business for the State Bar of Georgia. Um, and, and a mandatory bar association can require its lawyers in its jurisdiction to be members of a state bar and pay dues only if its speech is germane. And speech is germane to a bar association's purposes if it necessarily or reasonably incurred for the purpose of regulating the legal profession or improving the quality of the legal service available to people of the state. And so when the State Bar of Georgia always took did any action, we would we would examine that, make sure we complied with those two requirements, that it was germane and it was um helping the people of the, of the state of, of Georgia, um, improving the quality of legal service to them. And, and, and we all know that, you know, when there's, when there's an injury to a client by a lawyer, it almost always involves drugs, um, something going on with their life, depression. Or sometimes just health issues that don't. Health issues. Befalling them. Right. There's some issue. Um, and so, State Bar of Georgia, in my opinion, to its credit, has done the right thing, started wellness programs. We have mental health programs for lawyers. We have lawyer assistance program. Um, we have six free counseling sessions for lawyers, all paid by, by bar dues, and I think it's all germane to the practice of law uh, and the delivery of legal services to citizens of the state of Georgia. The... Um, Director for the ABA Center for Professional Responsibility, Teresa Schmidt, has come out and um, basically said the same thing and questioned the the um, the Boudreaux case. And she writes in an opinion piece that um, most she talks about Boudreaux. And she says the Boudreaux court's finding that Louisiana's wellness messages are unconstitutional threaten similar programs at all unified bars. And we're talking about wellness where they would just, you know, send out a little tweet. I mean, a little a message on Twitter they called, you know, violated his First Amendment right. Um, but anyway, Ms. Schmidt writes, most regulatory agencies responsible for lawyer discipline would recognize a correlation between lawyers impaired physical, mental, emotional and social functioning and conduct, which places the public at risk. For that reason, many agencies provide bar members with information and, and other resources to improve their functioning before their behavior results in actual harm that leads to disciplinary action. She says, nevertheless, the Fifth Circuit's opinion finds that information on lawyer wellness is not germane to the practice of law under Keller, uh, uh, under the Keller standard of improving the quality of legal services. Many lawyers who have rescued their practices by acting on such information and reducing the risk to the public would undoubtedly beg to differ. You uh, know, so I uh, beg to uh, differ. Yeah, I, I, I would join you in that dissent. And it's, you know, it's a couple of other interesting things about that. Uh, one, one of the first things is that uh, 
uh, the Fifth Circuit has, uh, I, I don't know any other way to put it, has come out with some pretty nutty decisions uh, recently. I mean, they, you know, the Ninth Circuit, uh, Ninth Circuit uh, U.S. Court of Appeals was at one time noted for having all these sort of wildly liberal, uh, you know, activist ideas. And, you know, the Fifth Circuit, you know, has more of a, uh, uh, I'll say a right wing bearing, but still all these activist ideas that are coming out. But the 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 other observation is to me, we have uh, you know the the Keller case was when you were state bar president, when I was state bar president, you know it was always the hallmark there. Uh, after the U.S. Supreme Court decided the case involving public employee unions. You know, there's state bar officers all over the country that have been worried about it being challenged, about their uh, mandatory membership being challenged on the basis of some political. I mean, I'm talking about real actual political, political speech, actual political issue. Yeah. I never knew that, uh, you know, the First Amendment guaranteed a constitutional right to be unwell or to not hear about wellness. I mean, this is uh, sort of a, yeah. uh, a a shot out of. Uh, out of the blue here. The, and, the other and, the the other basis that the Fifth Amendment, I mean, a Fifth Circuit held this was unconstitutional, was promotion of pro bono activities. So, mm -hmm. so the state bar is saying, here's some pro bono activities for you lawyers, go out and do them. And the Fifth Circuit said that violated the guy's constitutional rights. It's I, ridiculous. I thought, I thought, Robin, that you had a you, you had a very Freudian slip there when you said the Fifth Amendment. You know, that's the right to remain silent. Obviously, the <laughs> yes. Fifth Circuit doesn't understand it's got a Fifth <laughs> Amendment. It's got a right to remain silent on uh, on some of these uh, some of these cases, but uh, you know, not uh, not in this environment. Probably a totally unsurprised, unsurprising uh, result, but certainly from an unsurprised who whoever thought you know. Uh, you know that they're going to attack Flossin and Joggin. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's just pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's a re it's an awful opinion. I hope it does not come to another circuit near us soon. Um, but it's just it's it's shocking to me. And I know folks at the ABA are they've got their meeting coming up, and they're going to be discussing this because I've talked to already a couple other lawyer assistance program directors of other states, and they're very yeah. concerned about it and are going to be working to make sure they don't undo wellness programs of state bars, which is just would be absurd. Yeah, we've got the uh, ABA meeting at the end of this month. I'm on the board of governors now, so I'm sure I'll be hearing uh, more about now, that. Where is your meeting? Uh, it's in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am very excited about that because I hear they've got this substance up there called bourbon. That, uh, that might not enhance my wellness, but uh, I, I enjoy it nonetheless. So we'll, well and, see. and I'm going to predict there may be some bourbon in your future on that trip. Yeah, I think there. I think <laughs> so I don't know. I'm thinking I'm supposed since I bled in here, I'm going to do the end credits. Sure. And, uh, we want to thank our sponsor, the Georgia Civil uh, Justice Foundation. We also want to thank our producer, Philip Hoover, and all of our listeners who've listened to our 40 uh, episodes. Uh, you can learn more about me if anybody even slightly has that desire, which I doubt, uh, by going to uh, Lester Tate at Aiken, uh, Aiken Tate, Aiken Tate.com, Robin Fraser Clark, my 
uh, brilliant co-host. Uh, her uh, email address or her uh, website address is georgiatriallawyers.net. Uh, you can listen to all of the episodes of the podcast at cuncourtpodcast.org. Uh, we hope you subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. Uh, you can find CU in Court on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, if you want to send us questions or make a suggestion about an interesting legal topic, please do so. Email us at cuncourtpodcast at gmail.com. And I think that wraps us up for today, Robin. And until next time, we'll see you in see court. See you in court. You've been listening to the CU in Court podcast, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. Remember, justice is a shared journey, and your engagement makes all the difference. For further insight and resources, visit our website at www.cuincourtpodcast.org. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at CU in Court Podcast for additional content. And don't forget to engage with our community on facebook.com slash Podcast. Special thanks to our producer, Philip Hoover. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at www.fairplay.org. Until next time, we'll see you in court.